suffers. Do you notice the evil look in my eye tonight? That's because I got my pipe stuffed with old rubber bands. And I... <laughs> oh, we're all products of our environment. There's no question about it. Because, see, environment not only is your mommy and your daddy, your environment are those howling winds that go whistling around the eaves. The great lightning bolts that come lashing out of the poplar trees. And so uh, we can't help it. Just like the turtle is the product of his environment, so mankind is the product of the great inverted bull of the cosmos that he inhabits, sort of. So, uh, hang loose, friend. Uh, Uncle Wiggily's here at the. Uh, <laughs> how about a little points, huh? A little points there? Sorry, Bob. I wish I could be serious. I, you know, I remember one time reading a reading a quotation about a man named Scaramouche, and it said he was born with the gift of laughter and the sense that the world was created mad. That, friends, is not Walter Cronkite. He's talking about. It. A lot of people think the world is real serious business. Well, six of one, half dozen the other. Bring it up, big corny. That's it. And nineteen sixty-eight marches on into the and I just want to warn you, if you're nervous type, if you've got a pancreas that sweats, I would like to warn you, look out, because tonight is going to be a scary one. We just have received a note here from Moscow by way of Reuters, and there is no more serious news service than Reuters. Reuters, Moscow, thousands of fearless and hungry hares were reported on the march today in far eastern Siberia. <laughs> you see, things are happening out there in the darkness, friends. TASS, the Soviet press agency, quoted a report from the area saying the hares trooped through the streets of settlements in the Kamchatka Peninsula, quote, showing utter disregard for the frenzied barking of dogs. Millions of rabbits on the march. When they reached the coast of the Sea of Okhotsk, the hares ravenously attacked sea kale, a kind of plant in the cabbage family, washed ashore by the tide, Toss said. And then, and we quote again, they marched back to the tundra in the same organized manner. Reminds you a little of Lewis Carroll, doesn't it? Can you imagine yourself sitting there quietly watching Gunkley and Crinkley, Kinkley and Blunkley, seven o'clock on the evening? You figure that the whole world is organized and it's under control and CBS has got it all on film with an accompaniment of uh, mood music. When suddenly you hear out the darkness, the scuffling of thousands of feet marching to an unheard drummer. Thousands, millions marching in quick time. And you rush to the window to look out, thinking perhaps that it's a parade having a preview or maybe a rehearsal. And you see millions upon millions of rabbits 
marching through the streets of Darium on their way to Corvettes. I mean, really. You know, the trouble is, you, you, you say, well, it's in the Kamchatka Peninsula, so it doesn't mean anything to you. But this is happening at this minute, right now. Millions of rabbits are on the march. Well, now, most of us living here in what passes for civilization, I mean, we got streetcars, we got uh, in Philadelphia, we got subways in New York, we got cab drivers, and certainly I've, from time to time, ridden with a civilized cab driver. <laughs> it ain't often, but uh, we've got civilization here. The flags smartly crack on those flags around this skating rink at Radio City. The flags of all nations and all seems to be so. Atlas stands there with that great big load of, of dripping hamburger on his back. And everything seems to be under control. Every morning, Hugh Downs smiles out at millions of sufferers. Every night, David Crinkley, Brinkley, Clink, Clinkley, Clunkley, Hunkley grins out with his little wry smile and lets you know that everything's moving along apace. And all the while, mysterious events are under, under surveillance by those of us who survey mysterious events. In fact, I'll never forget the time. Now, I'm going to tell you a scary story about the march of animals. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm fully convinced that man is not necessarily the greatest creation walking the face of the earth. Although man is fully convinced of this, and I might point out that by morning, since I have implied that perhaps man is not made in the form of God or God in the form of man, that by morning I will be knee-deep in tracks showing me conclusively that man is the greatest creation on the face of the globe, written by the way the track will be written by another man. <laughs> and uh, and uh, this therein lies the rub. I'm a kid one time, and I go to the movies. And you've all gone to the movies from time to time and sat in there. Now, when you get older, you know a movie's a movie. Well, you know, you don't think of it as real life. Just a movie, it's a... You know, when you see when you see uh, Kirk Douglas battling it out in the Silver Dollar Saloon with a couple of those hard-faced men with the black hats, you don't really think that Kirk Douglas got one in the spleen and that you'll never see Kirk Douglas again. <laughs> he got, or, and those guys with the black hats got blasted. You know that you're going to see them in the next picture. It's all kind of the mythology of adulthood. Nobody really thinks Michael Caine is making the scene with Shirley MacLaine in the latest, greatest epic that was hailed by the reviewers of the Village Voice and the New York Times as another searing, searching indictment of man's continual search for erotic satisfaction in a world beset by fears of the atom bomb. <laughs> there he is. I wonder tonight how many people get their insight into existence through the medium of 35-millimeter film. In Eastman color, widescreen. As a matter of fact, it has been pointed out by several psychologists that man today gains so many of his experiences vicariously that eventually he'll have no experiences at all himself. And he could very well possibly be at birth sealed in a polyethylene bag with a warm fluid to keep him comforting. 
and he'll be fed intravenously by sterilized foods guaranteed to make him live 227 years floating in that sealed polyethylene bag. And experiences will be piped into him. And any type of experience he chooses to dial will be piped directly into him, a la Aldous Huxley and the Feelies. And so, friends, I am here to be sensitive for all of you. Oh, oh, that got me right where it counts. Cha-cha-cha, ha-cha-cha. Oh, blow that thing, man. Blow it, I say. Listen to them horns. Oh, showbiz. Uberalis. The mysterious sound of time dripping through the enormous hourglass of past and gone existences. Do you think cockroaches have a sense of the passing of time? Do you think giraffes know that the continent of Africa is dissolving six and a half inches a foot every ten years? Or did you know that Manhattan is melting, friend? Shoo, bring it up there, big. Ah, uh, And don't forget, wherever you may be, take that ballpoint pen out of your pocket and that chalk out of your watch pocket and scrawl under the clear oil ad. Flick lives. And when one of your friends looks you in the eye and says, Flick, who that? What's that about? You just simply... A curled lip say, well, it's all right, Fred. Don't let it worry you. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> all right, that's enough of that. Reset that. Achachonya, Razmatazi. Oh, uh, we have a commercial announcement here, and it's one that I take great pleasure in doing. One of my favorite restaurants of all time. And, uh, man, if I had if I had the calories that I packed away in this place, all stacked end-to-end, it had sickened me. Oh, <laughs> probably you, too. But some of the greatest Chinese food I've ever had in my life, have, I've ingested in Mandarin House down in the village and Mandarin East, my old friend Emily Kuo. And if you really would like a great food experience, and I'm seriously laying this out in front of you, starting the 30th of January... Mandarin House and Mandarin East are celebrating the Chinese New Year with a traditional 10-course New Year banquet, Mandarin style. I mean, all the way, man. This is your chance to discover the very finest treasures of the Chinese cuisine. And I can testify that uh, I think uh, some of the greatest Chinese food that I've ever had. Uh, you know, it's interesting how, the very, uh, how, how Chinese restaurants vary so greatly. Because each Chinese restaurant is genuinely the reflection of the guy who's in the kitchen. He's a true artist. And you'll find the food in Mandarin East is a little different from the food in Mandarin House, which is down on 13th Street, because they represent the attitude of the guy in the kitchen. But they're both superb. And by the way, this 10-course Mandarin New Year's Feast includes uh, winter melon soup, Peking duck, sautéed shrimp, spiced with ginger. Oh, man. This is Manor House. And the price for this unforgettable banquet, and it's it's a very limited time, is only $10 a person. Now, that goes all the way. Parties of eight or more can enjoy this banquet any time from January 30th 
through February 17th. Now, couples can order this banquet Monday through Thursday only. So very, it has to be prepared long in advance. This is not a short-order deal. And Mandarin House in the Village, that's 13th Street between 6th and 7th. Mandarin East, right in the heart of the village. Mandarin East, which is on 2nd Avenue between 57 and 58. And if you'd like to reserve one of these fantastic... Uh, what year is this in Chinese calendar? I think it's the year of the... Is it the year of the monkey? The year of the monkey, I believe. Uh, for reservations, call Mandarin House or Mandarin East. You can call them at WA... That's Watkins 90551. Watkins 90551. They'll take reservations for both. Okay? Speaking of monkeys, this is WOR, friends. That we're in New York. Who was it who used to say monkeys is the craziest peoples? Huh? That, that, that little film thing bored me even when I was a kid. <laughs> monkeys is the craziest peoples. Hey, a certain thing, you know, you pick and choose. And I'm this kid, you know, and I never... That point, uh, I think you get uh, definitely influenced by things that uh, Freud never talked about. You know, Freud always was hung up on mother and sex and all that stuff. But I think man gets... Uh, uh, he's influenced by other things, and I think those things that you're really influenced by, you uh, are really influenced by, and you can't fake it. I mean, anybody who at the age of four is caught in a major hurricane will never ever again look at the sky but the same way that a guy whose idea of bad weather is when it drops down to 32 and uh, the air conditioning starts squirting water on him. Do you agree with me, Corny? You have, you have been insane. I know that. Two major hurricanes and you never forget it, do you, Corny? Oh, no, you don't. No matter how old you get and any time you hear... Lyle Van complaining about the weather because it's raining, you kind of laugh inside because you know that there's other kinds of weather. <laughs> I mean, the real thing. And uh, this is what I mean by the uh, the environment that you can't... That uh, You know, I, I don't know of many guys lying on a couch in the psychiatrist's office. And uh, the analyst says, well, no, we're getting close to the heart of it. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, oh, yeah, I remember now. Oh, my God. Oh, 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 yes, yes. Oh, I'll never forget it. Must have been about six o'clock in the evening. I was about three. And somewhere off in the distance, you could hear the sound of something coming closer. It sounded like 20 million freight trains going mad, coming closer and closer. And then, boom, our house was in the next county. Oh, I'll never forget it. Right, Corny? <laughs> That's a little stronger, I think, a little stronger traumatic experience than if Esther Jane says no. Agreed? And yet to to uh, to believe Philip Roth or J.D. Salinger, the worst thing that can happen to you is to have Esther Jane say no. Oh, no. I've seen some things. And I'm a kid, see. Uh, when I read this thing about the rabbits... I'm reminded of it. I'm a kid, you know, and I'm sitting in a movie house. And it was this movie about Africa. Well, uh, Africa was very mysterious. and uh, These people were always around there chasing these animals. And, uh, have you noticed that almost all the TV series today about Africa, guys like uh, Cowboy in Africa, 
I mean, gee whiz. <laughs> I mean, the, the desire to write a Western far transcends the desire of man to be reasonable. And so, no matter where a man goes, there's going to be a Western. There will eventually, as the New Yorker pointed out, there will be a uh, cowboy in space. And uh, they'll be raising cattle on uh, Venus, and uh, there'll be rustlers coming out of Mars, <laughs> and so on. But uh, nevertheless, the, uh, the idea of uh, cowboy in Africa, which is a laughable joke right there. Cowboy underwater, you know, and he's, uh, he's herding uh, all these, uh, all these uh, dolphins around. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the herd dog will be uh, Flipper. You notice I, I saw Flipper the other night. I was interested. You know, they ought to have Flipper in the U.N. I'll tell you, that, that animal has got more insight. He knows human nature far better than the people on it. And uh, he knows how to get to the heart of things. But uh, nevertheless, this is the great desire to escape. So we have Flipper figuring out the problems. And Lassie, listen, Lassie has never been wrong. Ever. Just once, I'd like to see Flipper... Uh, send them off on a wild goose chase. You know, Flipper jumps out of the water and goes, <laughs> they all get their diving gear on. They say, oh, that's where the terrible thing must be. And they dive underwater and all they find is a rock. And the uh, Flipper's faking it. But uh, you won't find that. Animals, according to uh, the poor silly saps that write these things, are infallible. And they never make a mistake. And they're always invariably honest. And yet many animals are very sneaky. To anyone who's ever tried to, to, to train a horse... You know that one of the most dishonest things in the world is an animal. Absolutely. And next to a dachshund. And uh, <laughs> the, the dishonesty of these are, oh, I don't even want to talk, it's sickening. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm a kid and I'm sitting in there watching this African movie and it's very mysterious. And, and, uh, you can hear always in the background, you can hear this, the, the, the tom-toms of the Ogobuga tribe which is in all those movies. You know, those sounds of the tom-toms. You see these guys running around with leopard skins, and they're all going, go, 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 And I'm sitting there about 85 rows back, and I'm really sweating, because that's really scary stuff. And these guys are hunting rhinoceroses and stuff, and they're capturing them from the zoos. And there's this man and wife team. I don't even remember this. There's this lady there running around with the shorts on. You could hear the tom-toms. When all of a sudden, into the, into the compound, that's an exciting phrase itself, compound. Into the compound, this, this exhausted native comes in with a spear, and he falls down, and he's covered with sweat, and he's carried the message. And the, the, the chief, the, the head of the party there, this guy with the big hat with the leopard skin band on it, and, you know, the one that's going to make the scene with a with a, with a wife, uh, you know, Gregory Peck type. He comes over with his 30-30 Mauser strapped to his back, and he says to the to the exhausted native who's lying there, and he goes, And the native goes, They always say, He goes, And he's pointing out there. And the big man with the big hat with the leopard skin turns, and he says, A scourge of locusts is approaching. A 17-year scourge of locusts. And he's eaten 47 million members of the Ooga Booga tribe already. And they're on their way. Ooga Booga. And then you hear boom, get the gong, get the gong, get the gong, get the gong, gong, get the gong, get the gong, get the gong, get the gong. Oh, holy smokes. Mysterious Africa strikes again. Well, I'm a kid, you know. <laughs> I'm sweating like mad. And then there was a scene. Boy, you wouldn't believe it. It was photographed in, in, in uh, thrilling black and white. And uh, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, actually, a lot of stuff is more scary in black and white. You know that, that uh, 
people who make horror films have found out that horror films are like a 45 or maybe a hundred percent less effective if they're filmed in color than if they're filmed in black and white because color is too healthy it looks too healthy the sun is out uh, it looks too much like your world and hence you can't really believe in things leaping out from the bushes you know, with a with a with a mysterious poison on the tip arrows and stuff like that. But in black and white, there's something else. Can you imagine uh, the Bride of Frankenstein in color? You can imagine it, but it wouldn't do it. It wouldn't do it. I remember Elsa Lancaster. Uh, Elsa Lancaster was the Bride of Frankenstein, and I'll tell you, if anybody ever scared me out of 15 years' growth at the age of nine, it was Elsa Lancaster suddenly appearing on the scene with her hair standing up straight. She had her hair stuck straight up in the air like wires, and she, she came out and she had that wild, maniacal look in her eye, which she still has. But uh, <laughs> I didn't know it was really typecasting, so she, she shows up there in the bright of Frankenstein. I was scared out of, my, out of my shoes. Well, this day that I saw this African film, I remember the scene. It's funny, if, you, if you're going to ask me of, of, of scenes that you can remember out of movies and of the times... Uh, you know, the Times is forever using the word unforgettable in connection with movies. And yet, very few people can actually remember the unforgettable movie that they saw last week. And they, 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 you know, it's even hard to remember that you even remember the title of it. But they're unforgettable. I saw an unforgettable film the other day appear on television. It was the unforgettable film of the year 1959. And, uh... Watching it, I was, you know, I was a little surprised. Well, I'll tell you about the air. I was a little surprised that it was called Unforgettable then. But uh, there are a few scenes which, uh, if you're honest about it, you don't really forget. They are truly unforgettable. And uh, one of the scenes that was unforgettable, that uh, in fact, the only, I'd say out of three, three scenes possibly in all the movies I've ever seen in my life that I can genuinely say I have never forgotten. And this one occurred, I was about seven, maybe six. And I could hear the sound of the native drums in the background coming out of the soundtrack. And uh, these two people who were the head of this outfit that were catching rhinoceroses for the zoos back home were just told that there was a scourge of locusts on the way. And this was filmed in Africa. And sure enough, all of a sudden, the entire screen is filled with 28 billion, I'd say 28 trillion, ravening, chittering, insane. I mean, they were insanely angry and hungry locusts as far as the eye could see. It covered the whole screen. They were all going... <laughs> what a scene. I mean, and they, they were flying through the air like some gigantic snowstorm. Locusts. And it was a shot of a tree. And you could see these things just hit it like a great big wave. And they moved right on, and there was nothing left of the tree. Just, blah. They moved on past. And there was, a, there was an automobile sitting there, a truck. And they went, blah. And there was nothing left. They ate all the tires right off of it. Well, you know, I mean, we're naturally scared of bugs. I <laughs> mean, people are, you know, let's face it, of one kind or another. And I couldn't believe this thing. And they had it recorded. And, and this was actually shot in ever. They did not do this on the back lot. And the, the voice said, You are now seeing one of the rare films of an actual 
scourge of 17-year locusts, which are attacking this native village and have laid waste over 200,000 square miles of Central Africa. Well, this went on for about five minutes in the picture. And finally, the locusts had passed, and peace came. And the land all around where these people were in Africa, where they were hunting the rhinos and the leopards, there were shots. They took the camera and they just... It was as flat and as completely devastated as some kind of pool table that is lost on the junkyard of old dead pool tables. Nothing. Flat. And you could see dust where they had chewed up the roots of the trees and the roots of the grass. And the, the ground was carpeted with dead locusts. Locusts which had been attacked by their fellow locusts as the locusts moved on. And, and the only thing that was moving in the entire landscape, there must have been about 250 vultures just moving in great circles over the devastated land. And I sat there. I watched this scene. And I'm in the Orpheum Theater. I mean, the place where we used to see the cowboy pictures, and all of a sudden I'm seeing a plague of locusts. Well, this was a truly unforgettable moment on film. And I walk out, you know that crazy feeling when you walk out of a movie? And there's just ordinary stuff. You can see the bowling alley across the street. And the sign keeps going off and on that says, Eat. And uh, you can smell the popcorn as you go out through the lobby. And traffic is banging along. And that unreality, that, that feeling that, that the world that you have entered, which is the world of the traffic and the world of the sign that says eat, is very unreal. And the world that you have left behind you in the Orpheum is the real one. I'm walking down the street with Bruner. Bruner is quiet, and I'm quiet. We have been seared to the soul by... Uh, Something that Freud never talked about. I don't think Freud ever discussed a guy having a traumatic experience watching a plague of locusts on screen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, no, it is. You know, he, he was around. Freud was around before they had movies. I wonder how many guys 50 years from now are going to be lying on the couch and uh, the analyst is going to be prodding them for their traumatic memories, their great breakthroughs into the aha land, where he tells, yes, this is when it happened. And it turns out that all the traumatic experiences that he had were out of films. And uh, the psychiatrist says, yes, and then what did Geraldine Page say to to Paul Newman? Now, come on, get it out. Well, I, I can't say it again. Because the curious experience is very definitely taking over uh, in our world, and very few people have any actual experiences anymore, and it's all done by hearsay and done through the through uh, the good offices of Dory Sherry and various other types of that kind. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about this. I go home, and it's supper time, see. I'm sitting at supper, and I'm unconscionably quiet. I remember my mother turning to me and saying, What's the matter? Nothing. She said, Well, didn't you have a good time today at the movies? Yeah. And a long pregnant pause. The old man says, well, what's eating you? Come on now, dig into that red cabbage there. Mm -hmm. My kid brother, sensing difficulties, begins to whimper. And the old man says, come on, tell us. What's the matter? 
Yes, I saw a scary movie. And my mother always had this thing, which she always said to my father, and it was, I told you! I told you we shouldn't see so many movies. <laughs> you know, you heard this many times in your life. And, uh, and he said, what was it? I said, well, it was about Africa. He said, what about Africa? Immediately thinking I saw a scene where a lion attacked a guy or something like that. And I said, well, it was about Africa, and they had all these bugs. And he said, bugs? What do you mean, bugs? Well, it was some kind of a funny bug. And he said, funny bug? What kind of a funny bug? Now, come on, tell me. Well, it was a, some funny bug that looked like a grasshopper or something. Yeah. My mother says, oh, come on now. You're okay. They're not going to come in here. It's a bug called a locust or something. And it came and made a funny sound and ate everything up. And there must have been millions of them. And they were squeaking and everything. I thought, this locust. A scourge of locusts, huh? You saw a scourge of locusts in the movies? I said, yeah. Of course, you know, the kind of movies that my mother and father saw ran heavily to the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers type, which about as, was about as far from reality as you could conceivably get. I can remember Fred Astaire was always dancing on top of a grand piano wearing a high silk hat, and he had this cane that always blew up. You know, he'd hit it down, it would go pow, make firecrackers go, and uh, Virginia, <laughs> and, uh, Ginger Rogers was uh, always wearing this suit, this dress, this long dress that had sparkles all over it, and I always wondered how, how come it didn't itch. And uh, it was about as far away from reality as you could get. And that was the kind of movies they saw. The kind of movies that they were feeding the kids on Saturday afternoon was where it was really happening. I mean, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon after they had the drawing for the bicycle. We saw the scourge of locusts. As far as I know, there has never once been a scourge of locusts in a Gene Kelly movie. Ever. To my knowledge. And you know, we were seeing, as kids, I was uh, every Saturday afternoon, we are seeing these films about stuff which I'm sure that Bosley Crowther would have laughed at. For example, I will never forget the time that I saw John Hall. Now, John Hall had uh, this, he had this hair that was, uh, that was plastered down with varnish. He had the, you know, remember him? He had this hair, and he had this, this kind of like a short uh, bikini-type bathing suit, and he had this gigantic chest, and he was with Dorothy L'Amour. And her hair was also varnished. But the two of them hung on to a palm tree. I would say for upwards of 20 minutes in the middle of a fantastic hurricane. And houses were flying past. And people and cows and the whole bit. Giant waves were coming up. I mean, and they did. My mother and father never saw that kind of film. They always saw films that had uh, Jeffrey Lynn. Jeffrey Lynn was always coming in with a tennis racket and saying something to Priscilla Lane about playing tennis. And, uh, that was the kind of world they lived in. And Eugene Pallette was always in the movies that my mother and father saw. And Eugene Pallette was always saying things like, No, no daughter of mine is going to marry an artist. And the artist was always somebody like uh, oh, Clark Gable. I mean, he was very unconvincing as an artist, but he was always an artist or a test pilot or something like that. And that's the kind of stuff my mother and father saw. You know, that was grown-up movies. And the kind of stuff that the kids saw was John Hall hanging out of a palm tree with this chick whose clothes kept flying off with the houses whistling by. I remember, oh, boy, we were, we were seeing real stuff because there are hurricanes out there, friends. 
And if you've never been caught in one, you can laugh. But if you've ever been caught in one, you'll know, because I was in Hurricane Donna. Is, is that one of the ones you were in? Well, I was in that one. You know where I was? I was in a in a cruiser, the, the, the Springfield, a missile cruiser, between Haiti and Cuba. You know that straight in there? Let me tell you, that was a night I won't forget quick. Holy smokes. <laughs> I mean it. Well, of course, uh, this kind of stuff uh, was never in the grown-up movies. Uh, that was always in kid movies. And so I saw the Scourge of Locusts, and I never forgot it. Weeks went by. Months went by. And now, from the time of six to the time of maybe ten or eleven, there has been five years go by, but I have never forgotten the Scourge of Locusts. And then one day, it was summer. And it was an ordinary summer day. Nothing particularly impressive about it. It wasn't very hot. Wasn't very cool. Was not ominous. It was just an ordinary summer day, and it's on the, you know, it's on on days, the uh, the unremarkable days, that things happen. Just an ordinary day. I'm standing out on the front porch, and I'm about to go out and do something, to hit Bruner or something. I'm on the front porch, when suddenly I can see way down at the far end of the street. Must have been, oh, way off. Down, we had a thing called the Big Swamp. And you know, northern Indiana is filled with thousands and thousands of acres of unclaimed swampland. And this is where the lake used to be millions of years before. And it's left nothing but swamp and sand and skulls of snakes. And, uh, <laughs> yes, oh, yes, that's true. Used to be underwater. If you've ever lived in a part of the country that was underwater for a good part of its history... Geologically speaking, uh, the idea of uh, various types of amphibian skulls uh, constantly being dug up when you're looking for worms is as normal as breathing. And so, in this quiet afternoon, I see coming down the street, way down, a cloud, a black cloud. It was about a mile away. And the cloud extended up in the air. It looked like maybe a thousand feet. It was like a rolling black cloud. Well, I looked down on the street there, and I could see it coming. And I had seen that cloud some time before, somewhere before. I looked down, and you know how kids are very matter-of-fact about things like this. Every kid who sees a movie at a certain age in his life fully expects to have that situation or thing that he saw in the movie occur to him. You do not ever think in terms of fantasy. This is the real thing. And I looked down the street and I saw this cloud. I watched it for about a minute. It was getting a little dark because the cloud was cutting off a lot of the light. I turned around, walked back through the living room, back through the dining room, into the kitchen. My mother's hanging over the sink. And I said, Ma? She says, What? I said, Ma, the locusts are coming. She said, What? I said, Ma, the locusts are coming. Like in the movie. They're on their way. They're coming. She says, will you stop bothering me? Can't you see I'm busy? I said, okay. So out I went on the front porch to watch the locusts come.
let me tell you, I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that the that that afternoon that I lived through and that everybody in the neighborhood lived through is today still talked about occasionally in newspaper stories. In fact, not more than a year and a half ago, I saw a reference to this afternoon in Time magazine. That's right. That it was one of the biggest attacks of locusts <laughs> that, that had ever been seen in the Midwestern states since around the year 1838. Well, I could see them coming down the street, you know, and as a kid, I always expected to have the locusts come because I saw them in a movie about Africa. Never, you know, it didn't surprise me. But if you've never seen a scourge of locusts, I will attempt to describe what it was like. First of all, the sound. You know, locusts are a flying animal, a flying creature. And uh, to describe to you what a locust looks like, let me tell you this way. If you can imagine, you've all seen big grasshoppers. Now, there's several kinds of grasshoppers. There's the little green grasshopper. I'm talking about those big, dark brown kind. Yeah, you know the kind. Well, now, if you can take that grasshopper, multiply him roughly by double, give him a darker color and give them a baleful look in the eye, uh, uh, an eye that is vaguely red. Give them a wide wingspan. You have got a locust on the march. Now, there are two kinds of locusts. There's the seven-year locust and the 17-year locust. And they, they reappear at those intervals. And that where the seven-year locusts were, you'll find that every seven years there is a small or large, depending on the year, depending on whether or not there's been drought or one thing or another, a little upsurge of locusts. The, the worst of all are the 17-year locust. And the 17-year locust has to have all the proper conditions exactly right. Now, it is not true that every 17 years there is a scourge of locusts. There is a smaller or a larger one, yes. But Every 17 years, these locusts stir. And if the conditions have been right in the past five years, perhaps, maybe the past ten, you will see a genuine scourge. Well, these locusts hit northern Indiana like a fantastic tidal wave. The first thing that gets you is the sound. You can hear them coming from maybe two or three miles away, and they march in a front. They do not just suddenly appear like mosquitoes. They come in a body. They come in a great, vast cloud. It's as though somewhere the, the bugle has blown, and, uh, and all the 17-year locusts come climbing out of their hole, and they fly to the orderly room. They fly to the, to the parade ground. They all get together, and then they lay it on you. Apparently, there's something in the, in the mind of this animal that says, singly, he'll be stepped on. He would never make it. But you put two and a half billion locusts together, and stepping on them doesn't do you one bit of good. They just come out. It's like a drop of water. It's very difficult to drown in a drop, but ain't hard in the ocean. I mean, you know. And so they came out of the... Uh, in fact, the West. I remember vaguely... Uh, Coming, they came from the north and the west in a great rolling cloud. And the first thing you notice is the sound. You can hear it. It sounds like rain beating on a tin roof in the distance. But I mean a downpour beating, a kind of roar. Just to go... 
You can hear that roar coming from out of the west. And then as it gets closer, you begin to determine, you begin to hear individual sounds. The roar begins to break down into the sound of millions of locusts rubbing their hind legs or their wings together, whatever it is they do that makes that sound, that high-pitched sound. And then when they hit the house, they hit the house so hard. I am in the living room with my mother. She can't believe it. She's looking out of the window. The first thing she did was run and get the get the insect gun. We had a flip gun. <laughs> I'm not kidding. She ran and says, get the flip gun quick. And here's my mother standing with the flip gun, and she gives me a fly swatter. <laughs> and, and, and out of the darkness, out of the west, and out of the north came this, this fantastic crowd of, of, of bugs, just as, and, and as wide as you could see. They stretched from the horizon to the horizon. Well, the minute they hit the house, you could hear them hit the house, literally, physically hit the house. It was like somebody had run along the side of our frame house with a stick. Had just run along the side and run the stick up and down the slats of the frame house. It just went... Well, these guys were flying full tilt, and they hit this house like a wave, and they were hitting all the other houses in the neighborhood, like just great waves. And you could hear people all around the neighborhood squeaking. You could hear muffled screams, <laughs> and you could see windows with, with, with heads in it. You could see people pulling the shades down. I, I remember watching one lady across the street. Mrs. Anderson was out in the back trying to take her laundry down and running around with the locusts just swirling around her by the millions, and finally she just dropped the rope and into the house. I always remember that sight of her just dropping the rope, and the clothes poles fell down, and the locusts swarmed over all the pants of the underdrawers, and she just ran screaming into the house with about 40,000 locusts hanging out to her. And then that sound of the locusts eating. That is an indescribable sound. The locusts eat everything that is in their path. They chew the paint off houses. They eat, they, they actually eat clotheslines. They eat the shingles off the roofs of garages because they like the tar. They eat anything that isn't made of stone or solid, hard, old, petrified wood. And the sound of the locust eating, it's a steady sort of a low... You know the sound of a, of a meat grinder grinding up hamburger? It's a steady, low grinding sound, coupled with the 40 trillion sounds of those high-pitched wings. They're eating, eating, eating. And within three hours, they're all gone. They just move right on, leaving 47 billion dead locusts in their path. And I remember coming out on the porch, and it's just getting to be twilight now. The sun is shining. And off in the east, you could see the cloud receding in the distance. And the light begins to come back into the street. And you look around and you saw thousands and thousands and thousands of dead locusts. And the lawn has completely disappeared. The clotheslines have disappeared. Mrs. Anderson's overalls across the street are nothing but three buttons to say Big Yank on them. It was the day the locusts hit. You don't see that in Ginger Roger movies. You don't see it in Michael Caine, Shirley MacLaine movies. But they're out there. Right now, under the ground of Jersey, there are some 17-year locusts waiting for the gong to strike.